Alexica has an interesting story because you were working on something else before, which was D-Build. And then out of nowhere, suddenly I remember I came into the office two weeks later and everyone was talking about how, you know, your other app ended up like blowing up. So what's the story of Lexica? It's not that crazy, I think, but looking back, um, we got really lucky. Um, so Lexica started off as really just a, wee, a way for me to write better prompts for Sable Diffusion. This was uh, when Sable Diffusion was only a Discord server. That was the only way you could use it. You could like write prompts in the Discord and then generate images. Um, and it was really, really cool. Like I was in the Discord for hours a day. It was just really interesting. Like I couldn't stop writing prompts. It was just so cool. Um, but then I noticed people would write like these really odd things in their prompts, like Unreal Engine 4K, which like didn't really make sense. Like do those actually improve the quality of your images? Um, and prompts went from being like two or three words long to like essentially one or two sentences, like a paragraph. Um, and I wanted to know if like you could actually improve or control these models just by like writing more specific or clearer prompts. Um, so what I wanted to do was just like find a way to easily look through all of all of the prompts that are in the Discord and like see the images for those prompts. But the Discord search UI was really bad. It's like like the right quadrant, the right like eighth of your screen is like the maximum width it can be. Um, you can see like maybe five or 10 messages at a time. I essentially wanted just like a God mode view of like all the images being created and just like an easy way to look at thousands of images at a time. So I scraped the Discord. Uh, I downloaded like 5 million images over the course of a week or so. Um, just like reverse engineering the Discord API. Uh, and then I just put it in a database and then like bought a $4 domain name, lexica.art. It was $4? It was $4, yeah. Uh, I was gonna, I wanted something else, but I think it was like $80. So I just went with the $4 one. <laughs> uh, and, and it's the same one you have today? Same just one I have today, yeah, same domain. Um, yeah, and then we just uh, launched it the day after Sable Diffusion was open sourced. So this was like the first time in history you have a really good text image model that was open source for anyone to run. Um, so it's kind of this unprecedented event. Uh, the previous best model was Dolly 2, which was only available behind an API. So you couldn't really like tinker with it on your own. Um, yeah, and then we kind of rode the zeitgeist of Sable Diffusion's popularity. Uh, oftentimes people would share lexica.art as like, a quick way to see what Sable Diffusion is all about instead of having to like set it up and run it locally and like do a bunch of steps. And then you like generate an image. It takes 60 seconds for like one or two images. Um, it just took a long time. Whereas with Lexica, you can like write three or four words in the search box and then get back like thousands of images instantly. So it was a much better experience on that part. Um, over time, we've kind of switched more to focus on actually training these models instead of just being an open source prompt database. Uh, so we realized people are using Lexica as kind of like a tool along with other Sable Diffusion or image generation tools. So they like use Sable Diffusion in another UI, alt tab away to Lexica, find a prompt, copy it, go back to their UI, and then pretty much paste that prompt in, slightly change it, and then go back to Lexica, see what else there is. Um, so we noticed that was a really common way people were using it. So we decided to just build image generation directly into the website. So instead of having to go to another UI, uh, you can literally just like scroll through Lexica, click on an image, and then uh, you can essentially just load it in your editor and then like modify the prompt and continue generating. Uh, and when people generate images, those go back into the general pool where everyone else can kind of learn from those as well. So the first version was just a search engine for things that people had built or had, had generated on the Discord? Exactly, yeah. And how long was it in that version for before you guys built an image generation? It was a while actually. Um, I think it wasn't for like the first five or six months. Um, like we went nearly half a year without focusing on image generation at all, just like making it a better image gallery essentially. And so you're saying, you know, you, whatever the number was, it was like a million in two weeks. That was all just for the search engine. Yeah, that was just people like browsing prompts, which is pretty crazy. How long ago was this? Like two years? Ago? This was like, I, I would say roughly a year I want to say like a year and a half ago, maybe. Um, it was like whatever the date Sable Diffusion was open source, the day after that was the day we launched. How did you launch it so fast? You stayed up the whole night building the front end? No, I was in the Discord for like a week. So I kind of knew that they were going to open source it. And uh, Imad, the stability CEO, kind of like hinted at a certain date they would release it. So I was like, all right, if I can get this ready before then, then that'd be awesome. Like it'd just be useful for it to be used by people who are using this open source model. And I missed it by like a day. Like I didn't launch it in time for some reason. Like I was just busy and I couldn't just finish it in time. But uh, we launched it the day after. 
Um, and that worked out equally well, I think. Where did you launch it? Like, were you on Product Hunt? Was it Twitter? How did people find out that the site existed? Uh, literally just a tweet. The tweet was like really basic. I like literally just explained what I said to you. Um, like prompting is like really kind of a black magic. No one really knows how to do it. Uh, so I made this like really basic website where you can kind of just see all these images and the prompts associate, associated with them. Uh, and that was it. And it it did relatively well. I think it got like roughly two or three K likes or retweets. Um, and But that was like pretty much like the genesis moment for Lexica. That's where it all began. And from there, was it all word of mouth? Yeah. We haven't done any paid marketing at all. Uh, we actually haven't done like really marketing period, like not even paid. Uh, all of our growth has been entirely word of mouth. So you have no one on your team that does marketing? No one on our team does marketing. How big is the team? Uh, we're five people. How big was the team when you first built out like this first version? Oh, it was it was just myself for the first few months. Um, I was kind of working on another company at the time. Uh, that company had employees, but before that, or before Lexica was like an official company, this was just really a side project. Interesting. At what point did you guys turn on revenue generation? It wasn't for a while. It wasn't for like, uh, it wasn't until we added image generation. Even after we added image generation, it was just free. And then we quickly realized that for the amount of traffic we're getting and the number of GPUs we need to like sustain, not having to wait minutes for your image to generate, we'd have to start charging. So I would say it wasn't like maybe eight months in, eight to 10 months in that we actually started caring about monetization. Uh, really for the first eight months, we were just like, how do we make this like the simplest, fastest website for people to use for finding prompts? Around the six month mark is when you guys added image generation. And mm -hmm. at that point, did you have a team? Yeah, so we had a team at that point. We kind of taken, we had kind of taken Dbuild, which was uh, my previous company, and then pivoted the entire company to just focus on Lexica. And this took a while for me to figure out. I wasn't sure if it would actually be like a genuine company or just like still a side project. Um, and I'd set this like threshold of a million users, and I said, "All right, if we cross a million users, then I will like consider it to be more than a side project. Like I'll start to think about it not being a side project." Uh, and we'd broken that in like 10 days, I think. So roughly within 10 days, we got like a million visitors to the site that were like consistently using it. Um, so at that point I was like, all right, there may be something here. But even then I was like still really skeptical about whether or not it could actually be like a genuine company. Cause like companies are supposed to make money and like do business things and marketing and whatnot. This was just like a website for looking at pretty pictures. That was literally it. Yeah. How well was Dbuild doing at the time? We had a ton of people using our private beta uh, we didn't charge anything, so we weren't making money off of it, but we'd spent almost two years working on this product. Um, we were probably the very first like GPT-3 company ever to be made. Uh, it's like company designed to be built entirely off of GPT-3's API at the time. Uh, so I'd been working with uh, like using GPT-3 specifically in like software development for a long time. Um, well, I mean, as long as like you could have done it, which was like a month or a year and like a few months at that point. Um, but yeah, the models were still not that good. Like GPT-3 was like, okay for what we wanted to do. Codex was like an improvement, but like, I think we would have had to wait until GPT-4 to even like get something that works to like really bring our vision into reality. The models just weren't good enough yet. So for audience context, Dbuild was what it was. You put a prompt in and it generates the UI of a website or it generates the full website. Yeah. So it, it, it kind of, it changed a bit. Um, the original version was uh, we had this demo that went really, really viral where uh, it was essentially like a very basic UI where you would have uh, a prompt where you describe like a very basic minimal app. Uh, one of the examples was like a to-do app. Uh, and then you just describe it and then press enter. And then we submit it to the API and then we compile it in the browser and then run it in the browser as well. So you could see this cycle where you have this really quick feedback loop where you can describe an app and then see it like use like uh, like functional right in front of you. Um, and then we started to focus more on like more practical business use cases. So this involved like um, connecting these apps to your databases or your APIs and whatnot. Um, so we'd have to like build integrations like Postgres and other uh, data sources. Um, and at that point, it looked more like a low code tool with like an, a human in the loop where you wouldn't necessarily do, you wouldn't have the AI do everything. A lot of the times the humans would kind of architect at a high level what the app should do and then uh, GPT-3 would kind of fill in the gaps, like write SQL queries to map data to components you have in your app. Um, so we kind of, it, it changed over time, but initially it was just meant to be like a very quick way to build software. Uh, the idea was anyone should be able to build the software they need really, really quickly. 
when you're having the conversation then with the guys that you had worked on this company with for two years, you had raised funding for it. How do you then get everyone on board to be like, we're taking this website that kind of has like very clear enterprise value, user value, whatever. And then turning that into like, we have some users on at that point, it was a site to look at pictures. Yeah. Well, I'd argue like there probably still wasn't much enterprise value for Dbuild yet. Like it was still a really bad product. Like I don't think it was a good product. Um, partially just because we hadn't quite figured out the right interface for dealing with these models. Uh, partially the models were just not that good yet. So they would break down um, when you introduce the slightest bit of complexity. Um, whereas on Lexica, there was like clearly this thing that tons of people were using. It was growing really, really quickly. Whereas with Dbuild, it's like, it would still have taken many, many more months, possibly years before it even got to the point of usefulness that people are already finding from Lexica. So in terms of like economic value, um, like in theory, Dbuild should have been far more economically valuable because it's like this B2B SaaS tool. Um, but in practice, like people were actually getting value from Lexica every day, like in the present moment, not in the theoretical future. And then did you have to go raise more money? It's like you had a five person team or were you just, you know, using the funding from Dbuild? Yeah, we just used funding for Dbuild for a bit. And then a few months after uh, we raised a 5 million seed round. 5 million seed round? You went through AI grant, right? Yeah. What was that like? It was awesome. Match. Yeah, would highly recommend it. Um, it's really great. Uh, the program is uh, pretty brief. I think it was only a week when I did it. I think the newer ones are like a bit shorter than that, but uh, the founders you meet there are like exceptional. Um, the types of companies they're working on are also like, like similar enough where you're all kind of facing the same problems regarding like finding GPUs and training models and whatnot and like building new interfaces for interacting with these models. Um, and it's also like small enough where at least like compared to the YC batches of today where you have like hundreds of founders, um, it's just a lot more personal. Like you actually get to know the people in your batch instead of like one slice of a huge YC batch. Who are some of the people in your batch? Uh, there were a few. Um, uh, the Replicate founders were my batch, the Cursor founders. Um, and then there were, yeah, I remember the Cursor founders were actually uh, working on something else at the time. Uh, they're working on like a co-pilot for 3D design for CAD. Oh, interesting. Yeah, it's it's cool seeing how uh, they've kind of evolved over time. Same with Replicate. Um, they were kind of doing essentially the same thing, but uh, it's really cool seeing the companies just like get massive after AI Grant when in the moment they're kind of like, you're all just like trying to figure out what to do. Um, yeah, it, it had what I imagine early YC vibes were like, like the very early batches when it was just like a few people. So with Lexica right now, like a lot of those companies, I look at Replicate, I look at, you know, Cursor, I see people using it every single day and the novelty is like only growing. Like when I, when I first used Cursor two months ago, like I switched instantly. Um, with Lexica right now, how do you see kind of like the novelty effect of, you know, people finding out about stable diffusion and prompts for the first time? How has that changed in a year and a half? Yeah, uh, we mainly went from being like a prompt library to like an image generation tool. So people are less focused on, I would say, figuring out how to like phrase their prompts and more so just like actually creating them now in Lexica. So we do a lot of effort around um, model training. So we, we spend a ton of time on things like uh, researching newer architectures for diffusion models, uh, better data sets, uh, better fine tuning methods. Um, and we kind of want to just like build a really, really easy, simple to use model that's exceptionally powerful. Um, so in a way, we kind of, the essence of Lexica is still there where we want to make it better for you to, or easier for you to make better images. But the approach we're taking is very different. Uh, our previous approach was uh, initially like, we'll help you write better prompts, but you'll just use open source models. Our current approach is, we're going to do tons of research and engineering work for you, train this model and make it essentially free for most people in the world to use. And it's going to be better than anything you could do if you had like spent hours learning how to prompt open source models. Interesting. Do you think about competition? Because I feel like AI image generation is something that a lot of people try to do and a lot of those companies aren't around anymore. Yeah. Um, I think one thing we did really well with Lexica was we actually didn't focus on image generation at all when Sable Fusion was open sourced. Um, by image generation, I mean like building a tap, uh, like an app or service where you generate images and you pay to generate. Um, so I think when it was open source, there were like probably 20 or 30 different image generation services um, they've kind of all fizzled out by now. One thing that we did really well that was kind of just like really lucky is we intentionally didn't focus on image generation for the first few months. 
Specifically, we only focus on making our website and our gallery much better and easier to use and our search engine much simpler and faster. Um, and I think that was the right choice because uh, if we had millions of people coming to us, it was a lot easier for us to turn that into a really good image generation tool than to build an image generation tool that had no one really using it from the get-go. What are people, like what types of images are people like paying to generate? Tons of different things. Um, I think the closest thing to like image generation tools today are essentially like cameras for your imagination or like with a physical camera, like you just sit right in front of it and like it captures what's in front of you. But these models are really like cameras for anything you can imagine. Like if you have an image in your head, previously, if you wanted to get it out into the real world, you'd have to be an artist or you'd have to like contract an artist to design what you wanted or to create what you wanted. Um, but like, I think the true use for these models is they essentially like let you take a camera and point it like anywhere at any place at any point in time and just capture that. Um, and like, if you think about cameras, it opened up tons of different use cases and tools like Hollywood, the whole concept of movies as a medium didn't exist before cameras. Similarly, I think uh, having these models as cameras for your imagination will open up like massive new forms of communication, media and entertainment. Um, and that's kind of what we're exploring. Like we don't have all the answers figured out yet, but I think we can do a really good job of figuring out what does it mean for these models to be used as like a form of entertainment or like a way to have fun instead of just a tool or utility in like a toolbox. Um, I think at Lexica, we're really trying to focus less so on using these models as a tool for like productivity or let's say build a better version of Illustrator or Figma. And more so like, how can we use these models as like the next version of television or the next version of cinema? What does that look like? What does it mean to have a model that lets you like interact with it, but also control it uh, and like consume really engaging media and content? I hadn't heard that one. I hadn't heard that that pitch. Like I hadn't heard that angle of, of Lexica before. That's really interesting. How far away do you think we are from the point where number one, it's indistinguishable what's AI generated and what's like human generated. And then at what point do we as humans stop caring whether something was AI generated or filmed by a real person? It's a good question. Um, I think like there are certain categories of like images today where you can't really tell if it's AI generated or not. Um, like if I showed you a landscape, uh, I'm pretty sure like most people wouldn't be able to differentiate between like a generated landscape and a real one. Humans are a bit harder just because we have tons of, uh, a large part of our brains dedicated to just like understanding human expressions. So even the slightest defects are really, really noticeable to people. Um, but I would say for most people today, if you're like scrolling through Facebook and you see an image, uh, odds are you're not gonna be able to tell it's AI generated really easily. Um, I think a large part of what people care about is efforts when they consume things. And um, people are really good at filtering out low effort things um, so I'll give you an example. Like if you're scrolling through YouTube and uh, there are two videos in your recommended feed, one is like, one has the still frame that looks like it was taken on a DSLR. It has like incredibly well done lighting. Um, there's like a shallow bokeh effect and like really clean typography on the video. And then the other one is like a half blurry image. Um, and like, you can't really tell what's going on. It looks like it was shot on like an old iPhone. Um, and there are like black bars on the side. Um, the videos could essentially be about the same thing, but more often than not, you're going to put, you're going to click on the one that just looks more interesting. Uh, this is essentially just like signaling that, uh, the video is essentially signaled that there was a lot of effort put into it. The thumbnail seems incredibly high effort. Therefore the video is also likely to be high effort. Um, and I think there's something similar with AI generated media where people are generating tons of stuff but the resulting output is like not especially high effort and therefore not that good. So we kind of associate like the AI look and feel with low quality or low effort content. Um, where I think it gets interesting is uh, when people actually start to create high effort content that uses AI generated film or AI generated media. Um, and at that point, it doesn't really matter whether it was AI generated or not. It really just matters um, the, the only thing that matters is the amount of effort put into like the story or the narrative they're telling or the video or the image they produce. Um, and less so like whether or not it looks like a real photo or it doesn't look like a real photo. Do you know who Sam Sulik is? Yeah. The bodybuilder. Yeah. yeah. So 
I found out about him recently, but he does these videos where it's just him with his like phone or his camera and he just goes to the gym. It's like completely unedited for the most part. His thumbnails are just him staring into the camera or it's like a, like a still shot of like pulled from his video. And people are really starting to like it because now, at least on YouTube, everyone's gone or everyone is going the super produced high effort, chat GPT generated scripts, like the thumbnail all looks like a Mr. Beast, like the faces kind of like brightened and, you know, they're smiling or doing weird expressions in the thumbnail. And it almost feels like we're going the opposite way where it's like suddenly we want to see the raw content because we know that like there's more of like a pure perspective in raw content than there is in like the typical high produced high shot intro. Like even for our podcast, like we don't do the intros anymore just because we're, we're moving to like, um, or we think that like content is just moving back into like the yeah. more kind of like raw format. I see what you're saying. And the reason that's happening is because it's getting so easy to create high quality content. Like by quality content, I mean like, it looks like it's well-produced. Well-shot, well-lit, whatever. It's so easy to do that nowadays. Like uh, you can get really good mirrorless cameras for like less than 2000 bucks. You can get like lights on Amazon for like a couple hundred bucks. Um, It doesn't take that much effort to make it look really high quality, but it still takes a ton of effort to actually make it high quality content. Like what you're telling the viewer, what what your narrative is actually matters more than anything. Um, This kind of happened with websites too. In the like 2010s, I would say, early 2010s, a lot of companies had... Um, high quality photog like digital photos on their landing pages, and they would like hire a photographer to like take photos of like someone using their product or like something relating to their product. But then you got websites like Unsplash, which essentially made high resolution photography readily available, and now everyone had these high quality images. But then like the whole point of having those high quality images was a signal that we are a reliable company. We can afford to have someone photograph. Uh, subjects for our landing page. Therefore, you can trust us and pay us to use our tool. But now that everyone has this, you kind of have to find a new way of signaling that you're like a worthy website or worthy product to use. And then became the whole flat digital illustration trend where they would hire illustrators to like illustrate designs of people using their tool or like the Slack like illustrations of people like holding blocks up or something. Yeah, That became really popular. That also got cheaper. Now everyone's also doing that. And so everyone did the find, linear, the linear style landing yeah, pages. Super minimal, purple. like beautiful animations. That is the new like signaling for websites. But the thing is, the point um, I'm trying to make is there are always going to be ways to signal that what you're creating is high quality. And you essentially will all have you will always have to stay um, ahead of the curve when it comes to that. Um, because people adapt really quickly. If people if suddenly people start producing like really bad iPhone videos, then you know that you'll have to find a new way to figure out what's good content besides the fact that it's like a vertical video that supposedly is raw and unfiltered, but yeah. the content's just kind of useless. Um, so like tying this all back together to AI images, um, right now AI images are incredibly easy to produce, but there's still like a lack of effort put into the things they're a part of. If you see a video that's primarily AI generated images, it's probably also like a chat GPT generated script. It's probably going to be a bad video, but that doesn't mean every video is bad because it has AI images. Mm. It's more so the association of low effort quality that causes it to appear as if like AI generated images are bad in videos. Interesting. Do you see Lexco branching out into videos? Not this year. I don't think so. I think it's a bit too early. Um, The video models today are essentially like short form GIF generators and they're just still pretty slow and inefficient. And are your, are your users that are coming into the site, you're still getting discovery, I'm assuming? Yeah, most people, most people just hear about us uh, because they get into either just like stable diffusion and they want to get better at prompting um, or even just like using other image generation tools like Midjourney or Bing or uh, Dolly3 um, because you still kind of have to figure out what to generate. Um, like it's really jarring staring at an empty text box and not knowing what to type in. That's true. Do you worry about like Midjourney or, or Dolly being like competition at all? I see Dolly as kind of a utility. Um, Dolly is essentially a utility, which is the image generation functionality of ChatGPT, which is a productivity tool. Um, the way I see Lexica is the main question we're trying to ask ourselves is what does it look like to have like a Pixar in your pocket? How can you produce like really incredible media and tell these like great stories and have fun doing it? Um, using these models. It's less so 
we think of ourselves as like an image generation utility and more so like how do we use these new technologies uh, to pretty much like create new forms of storytelling or new forms of entertainment? So that's like a, that's a big vision. And, and it, it just, it's so interesting to me that none of your team does marketing and like, are any, does any of your team have like backgrounds in like creating films or like doing like generally very creative things? Yeah. So our team is pretty creative. Um, we all have engineering backgrounds, uh, engineering or research backgrounds. Um, but I've, I've spent like most of my life taking photos. Uh, like I have tons of different cameras and I just like care a lot about photography. Um, like hence why the first version of our own model was named Lexica Aperture, just because we try to make like a very photorealistic model. But like we do care a lot about film. And I think you can learn more about how to make a good AI image generation service by looking at what's good in photography or how people take photos. Then you can by like learning about the latest papers on archive. Um, there is a lot to learn there. And I think that's probably the most underrated connection to make in the current, at least with these current models is like looking at traditional photography, videography techniques and trying to figure out how to use that to improve models today. I keep getting stumped because I just don't see your answers coming. Like they're like, they're just so far from like what I, I almost like what I expected. Really? Yeah. Yeah. We we're not super vocal about our whole like grand vision for Lexica. It's, Why not? I'd prefer to under promise and over deliver. Yeah. Then do sense. the opposite. It's um, a lot of the opposite going on right now. A lot of big visions people talk about it and then you never hear from them again. Yeah, we prefer to just ship really good things and then, um, yeah, we not talk about the things we're going to ship and said, just like go off and make them and do that. How do you guys focus on like what to build? Like, how do you decide what to build? Like, you know, like next month, what, how do you decide what's going to get built in February? Um, the, we mainly spend a lot of our time on uh, developing new models and model development cycles are pretty long. Um, this, our most recent one's going to be at least eight months long. So it'll be roughly eight months since we began it. And it's really just like, you, you kind of have to have, um, you kind of can't figure things out in the moment. You kind of have to have like a larger plan for working on these models. Um, one, they just take a long time Two, things go wrong and like you end up spending way more money than you expect, or like it takes even longer than you expect. Um, I think so. I think when it comes to developing new models, you actually have to like, you kind of know what you're going to do in the next three to eight months, roughly speaking. Uh, or I think you actually can take a shorter time frame is the interfaces around these models. So uh, it takes a long time to make these models, but once you have like a reliable API that you can easily prototype with, you can actually ship like improvements to your interface really, really quickly. Um, like in the order of magnitude of like multiple significant improvements per day. And I think in that case, when you're working on kind of the interface and how people use these models, you can take a much, much shorter time frame and like uh, you kind of don't know what it will look like next week uh, when you're building the interface. But with the model, you kind of know that, all right, this data processing job is going to take at least two months to run. So we know we can't do anything after that before we wait for it to finish. You know, one part of your story that's interesting is, and we talk about it a lot here, Slept on Furkan's couch. Yeah. For how long was it? Like two weeks? A month? It was a while. It was like two or three weeks. Yeah. You and Farza and I think Eric from Banana and a few others were kind of in like the first official, like well, unofficial, like batch of Founders Inc. In that Furkan kind of met all of you guys from like the most like random places. And then you all kind of moved out to SF and started working on like the first versions of your companies. And like, you know, we were talking with Farza on Friday and like, it was interesting to me just to hear like the, trajectory of you guys kind of started when you were tw like very like early 20s you were doing the whole like live together and too many dudes in a house <laughs> like going to the events for the food whatever and then now I kind of look at it and it's like you've done all those things and now you're kind of in the more like stable like your lifestyle is just a lot more stable I would say in that you're building the company you kind of have a good team you're not worried about running out of money next month um, and I just think that you specifically have a very interesting story around that so like what was the early motivation and moving to SF? Like, how did you meet Furkan? Why did you sleep on some dude's couch for three weeks? Yeah, I met, um, I met Furkan, uh, he, he, through Twitter, he DM me on Twitter. Uh, and I was in school, I was in college at the time. I think it was my like sophomore or junior year. Um, I was working on a company called VectorDash. Uh, we were building, what is this, what was essentially like a cloud compute platform. Uh, but instead of running the servers ourselves, we would find people who had tons of GPUs and servers. Uh, and then kind of act as like an intermediary where they could list their machines on our platform and then people could rent it out. 
um, mainly focused towards like ML researchers and uh, people who needed GPUs for like training models and stuff. Um, this was around 2018, I think. This was around 2017 or 2018. So there was a huge Ethereum crash, which meant there was a ton of uh, unused NVIDIA GPUs on the market. Uh, so we were like, all right, we can get tons of people to list their compute on our platform and then rent them out to researchers for essentially like 20x less than what they would pay for AWS or Google Cloud. Um, and we had a ton of researchers using it. Um, but like the reason I met for Khan was uh, someone had posted our website on Hacker News and he had found the website just by scrolling through Hacker News. And he found like the about page, which had a link to my Twitter. And he just DM me on Twitter and I was like, hey, uh, this seems like an interesting idea. Uh, I'm going to be in, uh, like I, I spoke to him on the phone briefly for like a few minutes. He said, hey, I'll be in DC for a friend's wedding. And I lived in Maryland at the time, which was not that far. So I was like, yeah, I'll meet up. We'll like, uh, we'll, grab, we'll grab coffee and just like chat. Uh, we like grab coffee and chat for like a really long time. It was like a few hours. Um, How long yeah. ago was this? This was, like what year? this was 2018, I think. Gotcha. 2017 or 2018. It was a while ago. Um, and then he was like, yeah, you should move to San Francisco. And I was like, I'm in college. I can't do that. <laughs> and he was like, no, don't worry about it. You'll figure it out. Um, you can sleep on my couch for a while. <laughs> uh, so I ended up taking him up on that offer. And like a few weeks later, uh, I just moved to San Francisco. And then I think the point where it really dawned on me what a weird decision that was, was I landed at SFO and then I like had my backpack in my bag. And then I realized I didn't know his address. And it was like, almost 1 a.m. at night. And I was in SFO, I was like, damn, I should figure out where he lives. Luckily he was like pretty responsive and like sent me his address. And then like, I got a taxi there, but yeah, that was, that was pretty fun. Uh, we ended up getting our own space, our own space shortly after that, but. And yeah. who was we at that point? Uh, we? Like you said, you got your own place after that. Who yeah, was it was that? Uh, me and my co-founder at the time. Interesting. And then what was like, so Vector Dash, you guys went through YC? Yeah, we ended up doing YC around um, three or four months after we'd moved to San Francisco. Uh, so that was, uh, that was pretty fun, uh, getting to work on that for like almost two years. Um, and then we pivoted to building a cloud gaming platform where instead of renting out GPUs to machine learning researchers, uh, we kind of thought to ourselves, oh, we have like tons of GPUs almost everywhere in the world. Uh, meaning like the network latency from pretty much wherever you are to the nearest GPU was really, really low. It was like essentially a CDN for GPU compute, um, which didn't really exist at the time. Um, and we kind of thought like, what can you build with a GPU CDN? Um, and we were like, oh, you could build like a really good cloud gaming platform just because latency really, really matters uh, when you're streaming frames from a game. Uh, like 30 seconds of millise 30 milliseconds of latency can like oftentimes just ruin that for you. So we pivoted our platform to that. So people would rent our GPUs, but instead of using it to train machine learning models, they would use it to play video games. Um, yeah, that was interesting. Worked on that for a while. Um, we kind of ran out of money just because like, we kind of didn't really care about gaming that much. And it was more so like us trying to find a solution for the problem of we have all this GPU compute, like how do we- You're trying to build a startup to build a startup kind of? Exactly, yeah. And then what happens after you run out of money? What did you do next? Uh, I just worked on random things for fun. Like I just tinkered on a bunch of random side projects. Um, one of them was actually trying to build a chatbot coach for myself to coach me in weightlifting because I wanted to like get better at lifting weights and like do it consistently. Less so about the form and technique and more so just like the motivation of like lifting every day. And when was this after or before GPT-3? This was, um, I'll get to that. But this was actually like right when it launched, I heard about it. Um, there's a like internal YC forum called Bookface, and someone posted like, "Oh my God, OpenAI has created AGI. It's over for us." And it had like two <laughs> upvotes and like zero comments. I was like, "What is this guy talking about?" So I like sign up for the GPT-3 API, and I use it, and it's actually like perfect for what I needed, which was like to make a really good chatbot. But then I also realized it could generate code, uh, and at that point, I was like, "Oh my God, you have a piece of software that can generate other pieces of software, like." like somewhat reliably at this point. It's like, how is not, how, how's everyone not losing their minds over this? Um, I was like, this is crazy. No one's talking about this. It's like genuinely one of the greatest things people have ever made. And like, no one is talking about it. So I spend like all night coming up with the first, uh, like essentially debuild demo and I tweet about it. And it turns out like it was right. It actually was a pretty big deal and it resonated with a lot of people. 
that was kind of like one of the first uh, demos that got language models pushed into the zeitgeist and people actually started to care about it at that point. No way. I think I, I do remember like you were one of the, like a lot of people have told me you were like one of the first people to expose like GPT-3 to them like two years ago. And that's how Dbuild started, I guess. Yeah, I remember uh, I spoke to a friend at OpenAI like a while after it and they said um, they'd spent a bit of money on like a PR firm for marketing their GPT-3 API and it kind of had, it had like barely moved the needle. Um, and then they said, after I started posting demos, there's like a week where I posted a demo every single day for like seven consecutive days. You posted days. the demo? Yeah. Okay. Uh, they said it like just blew everything out the water and it was just like, they turned on at that point. No way. So you're creating AGI? In a way, yeah. <laughs> do you think, how far do you think we are? How do you define AGI first off? Everything, everyone has a different definition in the city. Yeah, I would say AGI for me is, can it do like, most economically valuable work that someone can do at a computer. So let's say someone who primarily works in front of a computer, like a software, uh, like a software engineer or a programmer, um, do you have a software system that can essentially replace their job entirely? Um, there are tools that assist them really well, like Copilot or Cursor, but I think you'd have to have like the full loop. There has to be some kind of, uh, some kind of cycle where it can refine and learn from past experiences instead of it just being like, here's a problem, complete it. It kind of has to have like this ongoing system, um, the system loop. Uh, I don't know how far away we are from it. I think we're going to get really close. But also I think like it'll be really expensive when it does come here. Like I think AGI is not going to be cheap. And the energy cost, I think Elon Musk was talking about it recently that like, you know, our power grids are going to suffer with how much AI consumption is happening. No, I don't think so. I think it's going to, we'll figure the power thing out. Um, like Sam Altman's working on fusion for a reason. So I think power will figure, like the cost of energy has consistently been going down. So that's not really gonna be an issue. Um, I think the bigger issue is like limiting a lack of compute. Like if there actually is AGI and it actually does require like a cluster of like a thousand H100s or like the next version of H100s to run on for a single request, that's incredibly expensive. And there just like aren't enough GPUs for that to just be used by everyone in the world. Um, so like the, I think NVIDIA is going to be a much more limiting factor than like the amount of energy in the world. Um, I think we'll get like something resembling AGI before 2030. Uh, it's hard to tell. Like it's definitely going to be a, a, a gradient where it's not going to happen all at once. It's going to be really, really easy tasks and then eventually much, much harder tasks as time, go on, as time goes on. It does feel like it's happening exponentially faster. Like GPT-3, we all heard, a lot of us heard about it for the first time a year and a half, two years ago. GPT-4 makes GPT-3 look like it was completely useless. Yeah. Um, and now they have GPT-4 to help them build GPT-5. And so it, like, I almost wonder, like, is 2030 too far away? Could be. It could be 2025 for all we know. Um, How do you think our lives are actually going to change? So I actually don't think our lives will change that much, at least for the first 10 years. Um, generally speaking, the, the adoption curves of technologies have been, like, pretty slow. Like, it took a solid... I would say like 10 years for people to start having iPhones or smartphones in their pockets all the time. Um, so actually it took a bit, it took much less than 10 years, but um, iPhones, which are like this fundamental technology to like almost everyone today, uh, it took at least a few years before everyone started having them. And I actually think, um, I think AI will probably be as impactful as the smartphone was in terms of, uh, I would say like human culture and human tradition and how, in how it affects our behavior. Uh, but I think it'll take a while for that to happen. Like, I don't think it'll happen overnight. Do you think that the people who figure out how to use AGI or AI properly in the beginning will create a gap between them and the people that don't such that the people that don't won't be able to catch up? Uh, no, I don't think so. I think it's going to be a thing where uh, if you have AGI that does what most people do, but is like 10 times cheaper um, you still have to get people to stop paying normal people. Like, let's say you're a Fortune 100 company. OpenAI comes to you and is like, hey, uh, you can actually stop hiring any marketers and then you just like use our AGI GPT-6 marketing bot and that'll replace the job of a marketer. You just talk to them in Slack like you would a normal person. Um, I think it'll take a while for them to actually like get rid of their marketers and use like the AGI 
marketing chat GPT six bots, you know, like it's not going to happen immediately. It's going to take a long time. Um, and I think there's also like a lot of contextual knowledge baked into a lot of professions that is hard for these models to pick up on. Um, just because like, at least in their current state, um, you can kind of provide a decent amount of context, but for someone who's worked at the same company for 30 years, they know all the tiny nuances of what that company does, um, and how they interact with like their customers, their employees, uh, their, um, their suppliers. There's a lot of like specific information that that person knows that will be hard to bake into an AGI chatbot. Um, so even if there is an AI possible of like solving incredibly hard, uh, math or science problems or is like capable of even doing novel research, I think it's still going to be impossible for it to replace like the person who works at a construction company that has been doing all their invoicing and everything for the past like 30 years that knows all the suppliers and specifically like how long it takes them to respond to them, how to make sure everyone gets paid on time. Like I think that's going to take a while. So my next, my next question related to this is about Neuralink. I saw a tweet earlier today. I don't know if you saw it, but it was like Elon Musk said that the first human testing, like the first Neuralink has been implanted into a human's brain. This was today. Yeah. And all the comments are like the merge has began. Like they were obviously kind of like hating on it a little bit. And other people were like, yes, like EAC, whatever. Where do you like kind of fall on that spectrum when it comes to Neuralink? Yeah, I think Neuralink as the problem is trying to solve is really important and useful. It's essentially, what if you had computers where the bandwidth from the computer to you as a human, your brain is essentially zero. Like what, or sorry, not zero. Uh, like essentially like as close to as infinity as you can get. Like what does it mean to be able to use a computer and have it, uh, one, get information from your brain into the computer really fast and easily. And two, um, get information from the computer back into your brain. Uh, so like this two-way communication. Right now we mainly use desktops and mobile phones. So we either use a keyboard and a mouse or our touch screen. And we mainly use screens. Um, the question that Neuralink is asking is what if we bypass screens entirely and essentially just use our brain as the essentially controlling device for the computer? Um, but there are a few issues with that. One is your brain has a really good immune response. So anytime you put electrodes in, it takes a, just a few weeks or even months before it's like completely engulfed in, uh, cells, which essentially like solidify and prevent it from being used. Um, so your brain has essentially like a really, really powerful immune response to anything that goes inside of it. Uh, so it's really hard to actually keep something in there that's useful. Um, and what's interesting is it's not the it's not the understanding of our signal in our brain that's hard. It's actually like getting the signal in the first place. Um, like if you found a way to like get someone's brain signal, you could probably decode exactly what they're thinking using current models today. But it's just you can't really just capture that information. Um, I think a more interesting approach would be to like stick with vision entirely and use probably our eyes. Like I think Neuralink and the Apple Vision Pro are kind of the same product, but taking different approaches. Apple Vision Pro is like bulky and external, but eventually will be made much slimmer and like more quiet or not quite uh, much smaller and more internal. Like you'll probably be able to use it without most people noticing in the, the future. frame of glasses? Maybe like even contact lenses or even like an optical implant where uh, you don't even know someone is wearing it. And I think that's probably a better approach than something that has to connect to your literal brain. Um, like there are ways you can actually get the electrical signal from your optic nerve to your brain and actually decode that into vision, like into uh, like a 3D, uh, like you can actually like see what someone sees. Um, so that's not the hard part. The hard part is actually just getting the signal somehow in the first place. And I think less intrusive methods are generally better for that. Are you worried about there being another, like the similar kind of problem of the people who merge, who have a Neuralink implant or have an optical implant or have like access to a computer that they can interface with their brain or their vision compared to the average person that maybe can't afford it? Do you think that there becomes a, a rich get richer kind of problem there? No, I don't think so. I think it's like, it's like iPhones today, like, if you can't afford an iPhone, you could probably still use a normal computer. Like, um, it's essentially just like a much, much faster, better phone. But I imagine like the things you can do with a very good neural implant, you could probably do equally well with a desktop computer. 
It's more so the convenience factor of always having it with you all the time. Someone who's always on their phone 24 seven, like will they outperform someone that's only on their phone for an hour a day? In some senses, yes, probably. In some senses, no, because they're going to just like overload themselves with irrelevant information. Like it depends on what they're doing on their phone, I would say. Um, but generally speaking, it's like, I, I guess you could ask, uh, are people more productive today because they have smartphones compared to when smartphones were a thing? Because like smartphones are essentially an external implant for your body. Like they're always on you uh, within arm's reach. True. And you can essentially use it as you would a normal computer, but the form factor is much smaller. So there's less information you can see on the screen and you can't type as fast, but you can pretty much do a lot of the same things you do on a desktop, just much slower and it's just harder to use. I don't think it'll be like a case of the rich get richer. It's like, that's, I'd make like for a really good sci-fi story or movie, but it's probably going to be something a lot of people use and have like a smartphone. It'll probably be like a lot of really rich techies to start with, like the iPhone was, um, but eventually it'll get cheap and, pretty much everyone in the world will use it. Like think of the $30 Android phones today that you can buy and are like about as good as the iPhone from five years ago. First phone I ever had was a Windows phone that cost 40 bucks. Damn, nice. I didn't have YouTube on it. That's crazy. Yeah, my first smartphone was uh, Samsung Galaxy S3. I saw when I walked by you earlier, I saw you were watching the Apple Vision Pro kind of review. I think The Verge did it. Yeah, um, I'm really excited for the Apple Vision Pro. Uh, I've used like, almost every previous iteration of VR headsets, most recently the Quest 3. Um, the thing that they're all kind of lacking, and I'm kind of waiting to figure this out for the Apple Vision Pro is, is the screen actually high resolution enough to replace a normal computer screen? Um, because like the individual screens are like supposedly 4K each. Um, but if you have like a monitor, that's not your full field of vision. It's like roughly 30 or 45% of your field of view. So you only get 30 to 45% of the number of pixels on that virtual screen. Um, but supposedly the Apple Vision Pro is really sharp. The question is, is it going to be sharp enough and also comfortable enough for someone to use uh, kind of like for multiple hours a day as one of their main computers? Um, I don't know. Like, I'm really excited to try it out. Um, it might be. If it is, that's awesome. It might be that like we have to wait till the Apple Vision Pro three or like the Apple Vision Pro four. We, I mean, we have the like we have a bunch of Quest lying around the office for Fluid, which is the you know browser kind of spatial productivity spatial browser app that we have in the studio. And when I went from using the Quest two, which I have my own of, to then using the Quest Pro, huge world of difference. Suddenly it was like a lot faster. I could see better. It was more comfortable. Whatever. And then when the Quest three came out that was like mind blowing because it was super light. I could probably use it on an airplane. The pass through was like perfect to where even though it wasn't as powerful as the Quest Pro, I would still use the Quest 3 every single time because I would have like all my monitors kind of like spread out and it would be with clear pass through on. And that felt like the most natural way to interact with VR. And so now with the Vision Pro, it's interesting because they have like, you know, like the meme of, of you know, you look at the flight attendant with the with your eye, they can see through. Um, like I think Apple Vision Pro is like a lot more AR than it, or as much AR as it is VR. Like that felt very natural to me when I tried it with the Quest 3. And so with the Vision Pro, I'm like trying to see more like from a comfort perspective and like also from a software perspective, is it good enough to where I can get better work done on a Vision Pro than on a laptop? Because to be honest, bro, with the Quest, uh, with the Quest 3 and Fluid, I would get much better like deep work done mm -hmm. in the Quest because I didn't have my phone. No one would bother me. I couldn't see anyone around me if I didn't have pass through on. And also just like you felt more immersed. The problem was I didn't like wearing like a big headset. And I also didn't like having to carry around a keyboard and a mouse like Bluetooth and set it up every single time I wanted to get started working. Um, but if they figure out the, if, if the, if the way of interacting with it is seamless, it feels like, it feels like working in VR at least will be very close to the future. Yeah. I think what I'm really excited about is uh, the ability to do deep work, not sitting at a desk. Like, um, for example, like your phone is always with you. Like I remember like running down uh, the stairs of like a, a metro station in New York and I like wanted to like reply to a message really quickly. It was like trying to catch a train. I was running down really quickly, but I like still could pull out my phone, read this message and reply to it all without ever stopping going down these stairs and making the train on time. Um, so the fact that I can like use a computer as I'm like running away or running down, trying to catch a train is kind of crazy. 
The question is like, okay, I can send a text message. I can like read it and reply to it. What does it mean for me to like also be able to like do more intensive work in a form factor that lets me do it anywhere? Like, let's say I'm sitting on a bench at the park and I want to start working. I would have to bring my laptop. I'd have to have like a Wi-Fi connection. The screen would be glossy. It'd be really hard to see. Yeah, It would just not be a good experience. Um, but like theoretically uh, with a Vision Pro or like a newer headset, um, you should be able to just like do deep work anywhere in the world or even like uh, pretty much like use a desktop computer without ever having to like sit down at a desk. Yeah. Um, what I think this is really important for is actually just like health because uh, sitting down all day is probably really, really bad for us. But the only reason we do it is just because that's where computers, that's how computers are designed to be used. There is no reason you can't stand up and walk around a room and use a computer. It's just that we don't have a form factor for that yet. Fluid is getting there. I think Fluid was like the first time I truly realized like, wow, using a computer can actually be like this full immersive experience where you're actually like using uh, your whole space and you can like walk around. Um, and it feels much more human and natural to like work in an environment rather than work in just a screen. Yeah, especially like, you know, now they're testing with Fluid, like one of the things you can do is you can just like pick up and grab a monitor and like resize it or like place it wherever you want and it'll stay it there. It stays there, yeah. And now they're working on like the multiplayer feature to where you and I, if we're like brainstorming something, we can both put on our headsets and have like a whiteboard and we I can move that and it'll move in your like in your vision. And I think like once those things start to get like real and once they actually work and there's no latency and it's not like buggy, it's like a completely different world of working. Yeah, I agree. I think that's going to be really exciting. I'm also just excited to like not sit at a computer and still use a computer. If you ever see Sharif running at the BART station with a headset on, <laughs> he's doing AI research. <laughs> Don't bother him. Yeah, I'll test it out and maybe it'll work. So to wrap things up, I'm going to ask you the question I ask everyone else at the end of every episode. Mm -hmm. If we did this podcast in a year, what would you have wanted to accomplish by then to consider the past year a success? It's a really good question. What would we... It's what like would the I first have, good question. <laughs> what would I have wished to accomplish this year? Um, if we can somehow find a, an interface or a user experience that makes using uh, image models a lot more fun to use and less so as like a utility where it's just a text box and you get images back, I would say that would, that would have been a good year. Um, coming up with like a new interface for using those models in a new way. Um, like if we do just that, I think that would have been amazing. Um, and yeah, we also want to like release a bunch of new models and finish training, uh, finish working on the new models, which we're currently training. Um, that's also good, but in a way I kind of think like coming up with novel interfaces for interacting with like, not even just image models, but also language models is in a way harder than actually just training them. Um, and I also think there aren't that many people focus on the interface part of building software for these models. Um, whereas there are a lot of people focused on trying to make them faster or trying to make inference more efficient or like train them uh, using way less compute. Um, but not as many people trying to figure out what a really, really great interface for using these models every day looks like. That makes sense. Fire. Cool. If you made it to the end and you want to try out Lexica or Fluid, they're both in the description. <laughs> awesome. Thanks for having me. <laughs>